Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 19, and this morning we will be looking at the first 10 verses. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In a book that came out several years ago called Give and Take, a psychologist named Adam Grant, and as far as I know, he wasn't a believer, but a psychologist named Adam Grant presented an interesting perspective on what makes people successful in this world. When we talk about worldly success, we often talk about hard work, intelligence, talent, charisma, passion. But Adam Grant, in this book, says that a key factor for success is how we relate to other people. And as he did his studies and surveys and his studies, he came to the conclusion there are three types of people, three categories. There are takers, what he calls, he labels them takers. And he says these are the people that are very self-focused. They tend to put their own interests ahead of the interests of others. And they try, when they interact with people, they try to get as much from the relationship and from those interactions as possible while contributing as little as possible to the other person. And then you have another category called givers. As he defines it, these are people who are focused on others. They tend to contribute to the well-being of others and when they interact with people with no strings attached, expecting nothing in return. And then he has a third category that he calls matchers. And he says those are the people who seek to find a balance in their life between taking and giving. He said that we innately have a strong sense of fairness, of justice, and reciprocity. And so we just have this innate idea that what we give, we should get back. When we get get something from somebody, we should give something to them. Those are the matchers. And as expected, he says that most people are matchers. Most people operate under that general principle. But what was interesting is he said that when you look at 
the workplace, the corporations, athletes, music, wherever people have endeavors, he said, the people that are most successful, he says, tend to be in the category of givers. He also says that those who are at the bottom, who are the least successful, are also givers, which is interesting. He says that those that are at the bottom tend to be givers because they give to others to their own detriment. In other words, they have an opportunity for success, but they're so focused on putting others forward that they themselves end up at the bottom of the stack. But he said also the most successful people are givers because they develop healthy relationships. People like them, and they develop trust and a strong network of relationships, so they tend to be at the top as well. That was surprising. And so he tried then to break it down a little further and say, well, why are some givers at the top and other givers at the bottom? And so he came up with another split in that category, in that one of the three categories. He split that one into two categories. He said some are what he calls selfless givers. In other words, he would say they are naive in their giving. They give to their own detriment. They give and they do it without discernment, and so they end up at the bottom being taken advantage of all the time by the others. But, he said, those who are otherish, he, called, he made up a word, otherish givers, not selfless givers, but otherish givers, they certainly put the needs of others first, but they've learned to deal with the takers and the matchers that they have to deal with in life, so they've learned to navigate all that, they're wiser, and they don't get taken advantage of. So that's why they become successful. The findings of that study, of that book, are fascinating, particularly for Christians, because we have a biblical worldview. Our Creator has given us the definitive information we need to know to understand human nature. And because we have a deeper understanding of human nature, we understand the dynamics under what he's trying from a secular perspective to try to understand. What we learn from Scripture is that we are all born pure takers. We're all, it's all about us. We are our own idol. We are our own God. We seek our own glory. We always want what's best for us. Some people believe that the best path to getting what's best for, you know, for them, for me, they believe the best path is to give. And other people believe the best path to getting what's best for me is to take. But they're both ultimately takers, and that's the nature, the selfish nature, sinful nature that we're born with. That's what Scripture teaches us. But Scripture also gives an overarching message. And the overarching message of Scripture and we're going to see it here in the encounter that Jesus Christ has with Zacchaeus. The overarching message of the Bible is that Jesus has the power to transform us from being pure takers to being true givers for the glory of God. That's the gospel. That's what the Bible is ultimately about. So let's look at this example of the conversion of someone from being a taker to a giver. Jesus is proceeding towards Jerusalem relentlessly. He's proceeding towards Jerusalem because the cross would be at Jerusalem. And we saw last week that he is approaching Jericho. He actually enters into Jericho in this week's passage, which is about 18 miles away from Jerusalem. 
Jericho, at this point, was a pretty prosperous city in Judea. It was located on a network on one of the main trade routes in a, in a major system of trade routes, and so a lot of money came in, a lot of money went out, a lot of money passed through, and a lot of money stayed there in Jericho. It also, particularly relevant for our story this morning, it was one of the three major centers for taxation in Judea. There were three towns or cities that were the places that taxes for the Roman Empire were brought from the Jews to be collected. The other two were Caesarea and Capernaum. Which brings us to Zacchaeus. What does Luke tell us about Zacchaeus? Well, first of all, he says he was a, notice the word, chief tax collector. We've already learned that tax collectors were despised in among the people of Israel, among the Jews. They were despised. They were hated because the tax collectors, as we've seen several times in Luke already, were hired by the Romans. They worked for the Romans to collect the oppressive taxes that the oppressive Roman Empire had imposed upon the people. And if that wasn't bad enough, they gave these tax collectors a lot of latitude to extort more money. They would collect the taxes that the Romans required for the tax collectors to provide, but they also would use force, coercion, uh, extortion to cause the Jews to have to give extra, and this is how the tax collectors made themselves rich. And so you can see why the Jews saw them not only as traitors, but liars and thieves. They were takers, takers on steroids. Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, but this is the only place in the Gospels where somebody is called a chief tax collector. So he was not just a tax collector, he was a tax collector of tax collectors. He was, a, he was managed, he was over tax collectors, and that's probably why he was located in Jericho. And so, therefore, he was, the scripture tells us here, rich, very wealthy. He didn't just make a living by taking advantage of people. He really made a good living. He lived in luxury. His high position as a chief tax collector, his strategic location in Jericho, and his corrupt methods paid off well for him. But one more thing that Luke tells us about Zacchaeus was that he was curious about Jesus. You see that in verse 3. When Zacchaeus heard that Jesus had come to town, it says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, this is later in Jesus' ministry, so by this point, the news had spread around Judea about this miracle-working rabbi that all the crowds were coming to see. But I'm sure that Zacchaeus also had probably heard the scuttlebutt about this miracle-working rabbi being called by the religious leaders of the Jews a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How intriguing for a chief tax collector. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm assuming that's one reason that Zacchaeus wanted to come and see about Jesus. Who is this guy? He was very curious. Now, there's no reason at this point in the story to suppose that Zacchaeus was seeking forgiveness or that he was seeking a big change in his life. 
All we know is that he was curious about Jesus. He wanted to see him. Which leads me to reflect on for a moment the fact that how the Lord, how the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit starts to work in the heart of a, of a spiritually dead sinner, when the Holy Spirit begins to work, he often starts with curiosity. He uses curiosity to begin to draw people closer to Jesus. And that's what he does with Zacchaeus. I think about it when I was a, a teenager. A couple of years before I became a Christian, late in high school, I had family members and friends that invited me to go to Christian camps or sometimes a, a retreat, a Christian retreat over a weekend. And I went to a, a few of those. And I'll be honest with you, in hindsight, now I know that the main reason I went was it was a great place to meet girls. That was the main reason. But I also was very curious about the Bible. And when I went to the retreats and the camps, I heard the gospel. I do believe that the Holy Spirit used my mixed, corrupted motivations and my curiosity to get me to a place where the Word of God could be declared to me. What mixed motivation? Before I say this, I do matter for the sake of anybody who's listening, this is not an endorsement of missionary dating. <laughs> dating unbelievers in order to bring them into the kingdom is not a good strategy of evangelism. But I just ask you to think about that in your own life. Look back on the moment, those of you who are followers of Christ. What were the first things that started to make you think about Christ in a different way? What were the curiosities? What did the Lord use? Praise God for the Holy Spirit that works in such subtle ways to make such huge changes in our life. And it's amazing to me that even here, 2,000 years after Christ, after he was here on earth, 2,000 years later, the curiosity about Christ does not let up. If you pay attention to the broader culture, just at Christmas time, Easter time, the documentaries are all over television about Jesus. People are very curious. I listen to a lot of music, and if you listen to intelligent music, not the stuff that's popular, it's all about sex and drugs and all that stuff, but the, the intelligent music, a lot of, I'm amazed how often the name of Jesus will show up in a lot of those songs or biblical concepts. People are curious, sometimes because the Holy Spirit is drawing them, and sometimes that's how it begins. What else do we know about Zacchaeus? I left out one familiar fact about Zacchaeus. According to the text, he was a wee little man. <laughs> a wee little man was he. Yeah, we all learned that little ditty in Sunday school. And maybe I'm, a, I'm dating myself here, but I know I sang it a lot in Sunday school. But he was small in stature. That's the more uh, respectful way that, I don't know, it must have been an Irish man who came up with that Sunday school song. But, but the Luke, when he tells it, says he was a small stature. And you can imagine, if he's curious about Jesus, he wants to see Jesus, all these crowds are flocking the streets of Jericho, you can imagine this chief tax collector, if he tried to push his way to the front to see Jesus, he'd get elbowed in the nose and pushed in the back. I'm sure that's what happened. And so what'd he do? He climbed a sycamore tree. Now, that's interesting because sycamore trees usually lined the streets and roads in Judea, they often did. But if you know anything about a sycamore tree, especially if you compare it to like a palm tree, a sycamore tree, one of the biggest differences between that and, and what we think of as a palm tree is the branches in a sycamore tree grow out from the trunk all the way down to the ground. 
so a, a, a wee little man can actually climb a sycamore tree much easier, certainly could never climb a palm tree. So this is, what's, this is where his curiosity leads him, leads him to the top of a sycamore tree. Very undignified thing to do for a prominent official in Jericho, but when you're hated as much as a chief tax collector, who cares? And so as he sat in that tree waiting for Jesus to pass by, he had no idea how dramatically his life was about to change. And we see here how a taker, and he was a taker among takers, how a taker becomes a giver. It begins with what we in theology call an effectual call, a call from the Lord that affects change in the person who hears it and receives it. Notice who takes the initiative here. Zacchaeus does not take the initiative in this relationship. Jesus looks up in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now I want you to notice that Jesus not only knew that he was up in the tree, he might have just noticed that, that might have just been an oddity that he noticed, but he knew his name. He knew his name was Zacchaeus. You know what? He knew his name before the foundation of the world. And he was there to initiate a relationship with Zacchaeus. It reminds me of that interaction. Remember when Jesus was just starting his ministry, just starting to gather his disciples, and Nathaniel became one of his disciples, and, and, and or Philip, I'm sorry, Philip became one of his disciples, and he ran to get his friend Nathaniel. And he brought Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said when he met Nathaniel? He said, before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. And you remember how Nathaniel responded to that divine knowledge that Jesus had. He said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. He was so amazed that Jesus knew him when he was sitting under the fig tree before he ever met Jesus. Jesus knew the names. Jesus knew personally Nathaniel and Zacchaeus before the world was created. You see, what we have here is what Dr. D. James Kennedy used to call a divine appointment, a God-initiated encounter between a sinner, a taker, and the Lord of life. This is not a happy coincidence. The Holy Spirit orchestrated this meeting between Jesus and Zacchaeus. This was the day. Today is the day of salvation. This is, was the day of Zacchaeus' salvation, planned before creation. That explains the unusual wording of how Jesus addressed Zacchaeus. Did you notice? He says, I must stay at your house today. I mean, it's kind of rude to invite himself to his house to start with, but he says, I must stay at your house today. Throughout the book of Luke, the commentators, the scholars, they'll point out that how many times Jesus speaks with what we would call the divine necessity, what he must do because he's the son of God, what he must do because he's the savior of sinners. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In chapter 22, he will say, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
In chapter 24, verse 7, he will say, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. These things must happen because they are the divine plan. They are the mission given to him by his father. And so he says to Zacchaeus, I must dine at your house today. He was on a mission to save Zacchaeus. And Jesus never fails in his missions. Because the Holy Spirit was drawing Zacchaeus very subtly, he very quickly and joyfully skittered down the tree and led Jesus to his home and welcomed him to his home. Of course, Luke points out what a scandalous thing that was. The crowd of people grumbled, Luke says. He said, they said, he has gone, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Accepting hospitality is still a way of showing acceptance to friends and relatives. Inviting somebody into your home, having them over for a meal. But it was like 10 times, 50 times more important in that culture that if you came to share a meal with somebody, you visited their home and came in and shared a meal with them, they were warmly embracing you, accepting you intimately. And so it was scandalous for Jesus to be under the roof of a tax collector and to share a meal with him. But verse 10 has been called by commentators the most important, the key verse, the theme verse of the entire gospel according to Luke. And it says there simply, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What's the book of Luke about? That's it. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Simple truth I want you to take from this observation. Jesus is the seeker. The sinner is not the seeker. Jesus is the seeker. Not just in this instance with Zacchaeus, but in every instance. He's the initiator. Back in chapter 15, the scribes and the Pharisees threw out that same condemnation against Jesus. They said there at the beginning of the chapter, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Remember how Jesus responded? He told three stories about seeking what's lost. He told a story about the shepherd who left the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. He told the story about the woman who swept her entire house to find the lost coin. He told the story about the prodigal son who was lost and then found. He told stories that illustrated his work in saving the lost. Jesus would say, in the midst of that kind of teaching, he would say that he didn't come for those who didn't think they needed to be saved. He didn't come for those who didn't think that they were lost. He came to save those who, by the grace of God and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, came to understand that they were lost. He said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, while we were still lost, Christ died for us. Now, I would have loved to have been invited to that meal between Zacchaeus and his family and the Lord Jesus. I don't know if I would have had the grace and humility and understanding of the gospel to be there because I'm sure many believers wouldn't have joined him. But if we were at that meal, I don't know what Jesus shared with him. 
I wished I could have been a fly on the wall to hear what Jesus told him. I don't know how much Jesus may have told him about what he needed to do in Jerusalem, how he needed to go to the cross, how he needed to die on the cross and bear the wrath of God for sinners. I don't know if he shared with him in detail the need for that sacrifice to be accepted by a holy God so that God could raise him from the dead and give him victory over sin and death for all who would put their trust in him. I don't know how clearly Jesus taught all that. I don't know if he mentioned justification by faith. I don't know how much he taught him. I just know he taught him enough to cause Zacchaeus to trust in him and to follow him. And that's what we see in the rest of the story where the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit creates a true giver. People only become givers through regeneration. People, sinners like you and me, will only become a true giver through being born again. Ezekiel, the prophet, described it as having your heart of stone, your dead, cold heart of stone being taken away and being replaced with a living, breathing, fleshly heart that is able to seek God, that is able to love God. Yes, those who seek the Lord will find him, but they only seek because the Holy Spirit has given them a new heart with a desire to do so. And that's what we see that Zacchaeus received. It's interesting how Luke, I don't know if you noticed this, Luke intentionally puts this story about Zacchaeus in very close proximity to the story about the rich young ruler. Because in the case of the rich young ruler, he said he was seeking, he said he wanted to know what he was missing in order to be saved. But when Jesus says, well, then you need to give up everything you own and follow me, he turned away because he wasn't willing to give up his wealth. And, you know, remember what Jesus said after he watched, sadly, the rich young ruler walk away? You remember what he said? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And so his disciples said, well, who, who, who then can be saved? If those who seem to be blessed by God aren't the, don't have the inside track to have eternal life, then what hope do any of us have? And Jesus said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And then Luke tells a story about a filthy, wealthy chief tax collector coming into the kingdom of God. And he says, see, what's impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible for man to repent and believe, but with God it's possible. It's impossible for a taker to become a giver except by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. In which case, it's not only possible, but it's happened millions upon millions upon millions of times throughout history. The conversion of a dead sinner is the second greatest miracle that's ever happened, with the first, of course, being the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, which made it possible. Man cannot repent. Man cannot believe. But God can change a heart. And that is our hope. Zacchaeus shows that his heart of stone has been taken away and replaced with a heart of flesh that seeks God and wants to please God, wants to know God, that wants to have eternal life. We know that because of his repentance, because faith and repentance always come together. 
You don't ever have people that repent but don't have faith, and you also don't ever have people who have faith who don't repent. And so you have Zacchaeus repenting as an expression of the new faith that he's been given as a gift from God. And what he does is he says, he stands up and says, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor. Half of his ridiculous wealth is going to go to the poor. And he says, he goes beyond that, he says, for those people that I've defrauded, those people I've extorted, those people that I've stolen money from, I'm not only going to do what the law requires of a voluntary restitution, which would be to restore what was taken and add one-fifth of the value. That's what the law required, the law of Moses. He says, I'm going to restore what I took, but I'm going to restore it fourfold. He went way beyond what the law required. And he did it joyfully because of what he understood of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He became a true giver. He truly put the needs of others before his own, not expecting anything in this life in return because now his wealth was not his God, but the God of the universe was his God. So an extreme hardened taker is transformed by the power and the grace of God into a selfless and joyful giver. But if you know the rest of Scripture, and you know the context of the story and the rest of Scripture, you know that's not the whole story yet. Because what we find out from the rest of Scripture is that true givers, those who truly give out of love for God and hope in eternal life, like Zacchaeus, actually are not takers or givers, they're actually receivers. We've already seen that their conversion happens by grace, but when they give, God rewards beyond their wildest imaginations. That's what Scripture teach, teaches. Jesus responds to Zacchaeus' repentance by declaring, Today, salvation has come into this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, the crowd standing around would say, Wait a minute, Jesus. He's always been a son of Abraham. He was born a Jew. He's a Jew. How could you say only now has he become a son of Abraham? Well, Paul says... In Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's that distinction between the visible people of God and the people of God as God, the invisible people of God as God knows it from his perspective in heaven. Not all Israel are Israel. Not all those who descended from Abraham belong to Abraham. Not all who call themselves sons of Abraham because of their ethnicity or their family tree are truly sons of Abraham in the eyes of God. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus was tangling with the Pharisees again, and the Pharisees got upset about Jesus implying that they were outside the kingdom, and they responded by saying, Abraham is our father. And Jesus replied, if you were Abraham's children, you would love me because God the Father sent me. Only those who love Jesus are truly sons and daughters of Abraham. Matter of fact, Jesus would go on to say, you're actually children of the devil because it's him that you truly serve, even though you claim to serve the one true God. In Romans chapter 4, Paul deals with this at length. And so if you want to do some devotional reading this afternoon, just check out Romans 4. Paul calls Abraham there the father of all who believe. Abraham is the father of all who believe, whose faith is counted to them as righteousness. We are sons of, and daughters of Abraham, therefore sons and daughters of God by faith. And it is only through Christ that we 
enter into his family. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Not only true sons of Abraham, therefore in the kingdom for eternity, but you are heirs of the kingdom. Remember what I said about giving up earthly wealth? You end up with the wealth of the kingdom forever. Pretty good exchange. See, Zacchaeus, by faith, became a true spiritual son of Abraham. He became part of God's family. He gave up most of his earthly wealth, but what he received in Christ and in Christ's kingdom was far greater. Back in chapter 18, you remember I talked about the rich young ruler who rejected Christ for his wealth, and Jesus said it was impossible for a rich person to be saved. Remember? And he said, you know, if, if, that, that uh, it's possible with God. And remember how Peter replied to that? He said, hey, Lord, we've given up our families. We've given up our houses. We've left all that to follow you. Do you remember what Jesus said? We saw this a couple weeks ago. He said, truly I say to you, no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, this is why true givers, givers who are born again, that's why they joyfully give. Not because the earthly benefit back to them is going to be great, because it may not be. As a matter of fact, most of the time it's not. But because of the reward that is promised from being part of the kingdom, which is far more valuable than a bank account or a car or whatever it is else in this world that you're investing in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And Paul reflects this same principle in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Everyone must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because joyful givers understand that they're exchanging earthly wealth for eternal wealth. And it's eternal wealth that we can begin to taste of even in this life. Because we said last couple of weeks ago, we talked about the wealth that the rich young ruler gave up. What a wonderful thing to be a part of the family of God in this world as sinners, to be loved and accepted by grace, not just by Christ, but by each other. What a blessing to have peace instead of anxiety in your heart. What a blessing to have hope instead of despair. Why would you give up those things for earthly wealth, like the rich young ruler? I want to close with a couple of bi biblical passages. The first one, I love this because we tend to think of the law as being all about do, 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 but there's so much of the gospel sprinkled in among the law to make sure that we understand that that's not the purpose of the law in terms of how we know God or are saved. One of those passages is Deuteronomy 15. Listen to what God says to Moses there. He says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him 
and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. That is the nature. That's the true giving nature of a born-again believer, is that increasingly he opens our hand. We, before we knew Christ, we lived like this, grasping, holding on to, clinging to the things of this life and this world. But he, by grace, has opened our hands. And we found the true joy of giving. Evidence that you know Jesus, that you love Jesus, is that you live life with open hands. Why? One verse will answer that question. John 7 where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I will meet your deepest, most profound, eternal needs. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink all that you want to drink. Have every need in your life satisfied. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the key open-handedness, being a true giver because of the way that the grace of God has changed your life. If you don't know that this morning, boy, do I have a great message to tell you. What a reward. What a, I have something to offer you that is far greater value than anything in this world, but it's not from me. It's from the Word of God. It's from the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and it's available to you in a moment right now. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for giving us a desire, a curiosity, a desire to seek after Christ. And thank you for showing, us, showing him to us by the Holy Spirit. You've shown us his beauty. You've shown us his power. You've shown us his rule and authority over our lives. You've shown us his victory over the grave. You've shown us the forgiveness that is available for all of our many sins. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all that you've given, and may we become true, heartfelt, joyful givers as a result of your sanctifying work in our lives as we draw nearer to Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that maybe I'm assuming the fact that they're here this morning, that they're curious about Jesus to one level or another, I pray, Lord, that that curiosity would turn into true seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'd draw them to Christ and they'd find the true wealth that is in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.